The title of the message, uh, Go the Second Mile and Turn the Other Cheek. And uh, we probably heard the sayings before. So go the extra mile or go the second mile. And sometimes we say things and we sort of know what they mean, but we don't know exactly sometimes. And sometimes we don't know the history of the saying and, and where those things come from. For instance, who's heard of the term um, go the whole nine yards? Anyone heard of that? A few, a few of you? Well, it means to sort of to try one's best. But um, the saying actually comes from World War II. And uh, it was fighter pilots uh, in their planes would receive uh, a nine-yard chain of ammunition. Therefore, if a, if a pilot used all of his ammunition in one target, he gave it the whole nine yards. And so that's where the, the saying, want to give it the whole nine yards, you've, you've done the whole, the whole lot of the ammunition. And uh, you, you go your, your hardest. And today we're going to be looking at a couple of well-known sayings. Go the second mile and turn the other cheek. But these aren't just sayings. They're actually commands of Christ. So we just want to have a look at that and what, what Christ was doing. And he was really turning uh, his disciples' thinkings on the head. And there's a big change in um, it turning away from the law and uh, looking at the, the love of Christ. But let's just open in prayer first. Lord God, we thank you and praise you for your goodness. Lord, we thank you for your word and its richness and instructions to us. We pray that you would open our hearts and minds to receive your word this morning, that um, your spirit would be uh, working through myself and, and uh, that you would be working each one's heart this morning and that you will be honoured and glorified today. In Jesus' name, amen. So when looking at uh, things, we need to be able to put things in context, like the going the whole nine yards. We, we looked at uh, where that come from. And uh, it's important to be able to put things in context uh, for when this command was given. When God gave <clears throat> this, his law, uh, gave his law to the nation of Israel, he established specific penalties for assault and battery. Let's have a look at Exodus chapter 21. You can turn over there. Exodus chapter 21. Verse 22 to 24. And it says there, If men strive and hurt a woman with child, so that her fruit depart from her, and yet no mischief follow, he shall be surely punished according to the woman's husband will lay upon him and he shall pay as the judges determine. And if any mischief uh, follow, uh, then thou shalt give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So remember we're, we're looking at Matthew 5, 38 to 42. And uh, where the Lord is speaking about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So we're it's looking at where these things come from. Again, this same judgment is repeated in um, Leviticus chapter 24 and verses 19 to 20. And if any man cause a blemish to his neighbor, as he hath done, he shall be, it, so shall it be done to him. Breach for breach, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, as he hath caused a blemish in a man, so shall it be done again. 
And there's a third application of this Lord was given to one who gave a false accusation uh, against his neighbour. Uh, whatever the false witness intended to do to his neighbour was to be done to him. In Deuteronomy 19.21 it says, And thine eye shall not, um, shall not pity, but life shall go for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So it's against this legal background that Jesus establishes this new directive for his disciples. I was thinking about, about that and um, I was thinking about tooth for tooth. And uh, if you were, I don't know, I was trying to think of a scenario about what would happen if someone got their tooth knocked out. He might have been out for tea or something like that and some drunkard comes up and smacks you in the mouth and, and uh, you lose your tooth. They then go before a judge and they'd have to rip his tooth out as well as, as, a, as judgment for that. I was thinking they probably didn't have any needles or anything like that and I don't know what they used to pull his tooth out back in the day, but it would have a pretty brutal um, thing to, to happen, uh, a tooth for a tooth, and uh, let alone a hand or a foot. But um, against that legal background, Jesus is establishing a new direction though. He was... He was moving away from that. And rather than focusing on a, a personal retaliation and something happens to you, your first natural reaction is to, like, you want to pay back. And that's what you want to be able to do. And rather than focusing on that personal uh, retaliation for the wrongs that have been done, Christ was moving their attention for them to concentrate on demonstrating God's love to the offenders. Instead of getting payback, we were to, to start to change our thinking to look at showing and demonstrating God's love to offenders. So we turn back to um, our portion of Scripture in Matthew, chapter 5, verse 38. And you've heard it been said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. That's a strange thing to say. That you resist not evil. So what does it mean to resist not evil? The Greek word for resist is anti-stemi, which means to stand against or to oppose. So when you're resisting something, you're standing against it or you're opposing it. The same word is used to describe the resistance that we are not to have against civil authorities. Romans 13.2 says, Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the authorities that are being put in place, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. That's from Romans 13.2. So we're not to resist against civil authorities. So it's that same words being used here and not um, that we're to resist not evil. On the other hand, God instructs us to resist the devil and he will flee from you in James 4, 7. And to resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world in 1 Peter 5, 9. So we are to resist against certain things but we're to also to not to resist against other things. In Matthew 5, 39, the Greek word for evil, so we're resisting, which is to stand against and oppose, not evil. So the word here for evil is ponderous, 
which means hurtful or malicious. And it's from the derivative of ponos, which means anguish. So we're not to resist against those things which are hurtful or malicious or cause anguish. In this command, Jesus states the law that the people had come to use as a basis um, as the basis of a justification for personal retaliation. So he talks about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The principle of legal justice was given to authorities to determine uh, proper punishment for crimes against the people. But, but the people had turned that now and we're actually using it as a, as a right for personal um, retaliation. So in that scripture that we read in Exodus, where it, lay, it was laying down that law, it says there that he shall pay as the judges determine. So when God laid that down, he was giving that um, as an instruction, but there was a judge who was to lay down that, um, that judgment, where the people had taken that further now and says, well, I've got the right, if you punch a tooth out of me, I can rip a tooth out of you, and they'd, they'd have retaliation and retribution themselves. And so they'd actually gone uh, beyond that and, and had turned it uh, as a right to be able to have personal retaliation. This principle of legal justice was given to authorities to determine pro proper punishment for crimes against people, but they were using it now for that personal retaliation. But Jesus now is establishing a new standard, a new standard for his disciples. But we might ask the question is, well, if we... Don't resist the offences of evildoers. How are they going to be punished? What's going to happen? And it can grind against us when we see people who get away with stuff. We can see awful sins are being done, awful um, things being done to innocent people who had, had uh, nothing uh, coming to them, but they've had these awful things and people get away with it. God responds... In Romans 12, 9, it says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. There's going to be a time of retribution from the Lord. God is a God of justice and of, of judgment as well as love and forgiveness. And those who think they'll get away will, will have their, their day in, in court, as we say. God works through civil authorities to whom he has trusted his sword. Uh, executing justice is their responsibility while ours is to determine the love of Christ. Turn over to Romans chapter 13. We can see where God has given that to us. Romans 13, 1 to 8. It says there, let every, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, the powers that are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resisteth shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore ye must needs be subject only, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. For this cause we pay ye tribute also. 
for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honour to whom honour. Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. So God is laying down that we we need to be under the authority of the civil uh, authorities that have been put uh, put in, and we pray for our um, people who are in Parliament, our um, our leaders of the country, our um, political leaders. We have uh, our local state authorities. We have police. those people have been put in place for a purpose. God has anointed them to be able to, to pay, be in place, to be able to keep um, a law across his country. And, it, and clearly the Lord is telling us that we need to be able to put ourselves under those authority and trust in, in what's going to happen there. And God is still in control. So we are to resist not evil, but what types of evil are we not to resist In this passage, there are four types of distinct examples of wrongs done to us that we are not to resist. Each each one indicates a cause for the hurt and the reasons we should not resist. So the first one is a slap in the face. Has anyone ever been slapped in the face? I don't think I've been. Oh, John. We can tell us that story later. But in, in examples seen, it might be on the telly or something like that, it's usually a bloke who gets slapped by a woman or something for something they've said or done, they've done something wrong. But it is hoped that if somebody slaps us in the face, it is not for wrongs that we have done, but for our stand in righteousness um, that, um, that it has happened. So we might have someone get upset um, about um, said about, with us about what we have said or done, hopefully because of righteous things, not because of unrighteous things. There's an example given in First Kings twenty two twenty four of um, Micaiah, and it says in First Kings twenty two twenty four, but Zedekiah the son of Cheniah went near and smote uh, Micaiah on the cheek and said, Which way went the spirit of the Lord from me? Uh, to speak unto thee. So Micaiah was standing against um, Zedekiah and uh, all these other prophets had prophesied that everything was going to go okay and he was going against the grain and saying that no, you're not going to win this battle and he wasn't falling in line with all the other prophets. And so the, the king didn't like that and slapped him across the face to try and wake him up and get him to change his ways. But, and so he was rebuked for his stand for righteousness. And so that's what we we should be able to be doing. But a slap in the face can also be motivated um, by a fault on our part. If you're disrespectful or impertinent towards another person, they may slap you in the face. And uh, it'd wake you up and and, uh, get you to turn around and change your behavior pretty quick if someone was to slap you in the face. Um, And this happened to the Apostle Paul when he was brought before the Sanhedrin. Um, that's in Acts 23. We can turn there. Acts 23. Read verses 1 through to 5. And 
Paul earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded them, stood by to smite him on the mouth. Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, and thou whited wall, thou sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commanded me to be smitten contrary to the law. And they that stood by revilest thou the high uh, stood by said, Revilest thou the high priest? Then said Paul, I wist not, brethren, that he was a high priest, for it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. So, um, this happened to the Apostle Paul when he was brought before the Sanhedrin. He said to the one in charge, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God unto this day. And the one in charge then commanded someone to go and slap him in the face. And the sting of the slap and its injustice caused Paul to say, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall, thou sittest in judgment of me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law. And he was, he was very quickly rebuked uh, for, for saying that. And they said in verse 4 there, Revilest thou God's high priest? And Paul immediately changed his tune and apologized, um, saying, I wish not, brethren, that the high priest, for he's written, thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of the people. So he, he'd done something wrong. He'd, he'd offended them there, and uh, he, he repented of that. Jesus Christ, during his crucifixion, um, he demonstrated the correct response. So we can see a, a good one and a wrong one, but Christ is a perfect example. In each one of these four examples, we're going to be looking at how Christ um, reacted. And uh, it is hard to, to conceive that mortal man would slap the face of an eternal God, but that's what happened. Luke 24, 22, 64 says, And when they had blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is it that he that smote thee? So they were standing around, smacking him in the face, and say, Come on, you're such a big man. Tell us who, who slapped you, and another one and have a go, and another one and have a go. And this is the Son of God standing there, and he just took it. He just took it. Uh, and if our goal is to know Christ, then we must experience the fellowship of his suffering. Jesus Christ took slaps in the face and responded in love in order to show his offenders the power of God's love. He took all that so he could be that perfect sacrifice for us. He, he took the humili humiliation he was um, God in heaven on the throne. He humiliated himself and come and contained himself to be a man, to be like us. He contained himself in this minute vessel. And then he had to cop all that as well. And he did that so he could show love. We've all offended him. He wanted to show love to everyone. So he, he, he copped that to be able to show the power of God's love. And we need to be able to look at that as well. The second thing, that type of evil that we are not to resist is a lawsuit. When it talks about there back in Matthew, uh, verse 40, And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. A lawsuit. So an example here Jesus gave uh, to the second point is that of a man being sued by the law 
by one who had a legal claim against him. And it would have been wise for the one that, um, who was sued not to resist what he thought was an evil attack against him, but to agree quickly uh, with his adversary and try to settle things out of court. We don't want things to go to court if we can do it. So it's best to handle things outside of court and, uh, and settle that. However, once having lost in court, Jesus commanded his followers not only to give what the judge required, which was the coat, but also to go beyond that and give his cloak also. And this is a very significant command because the cloak was what uh, was all that a poor man had for protection at night. And therefore, this could not lawfully be taken from him. Exodus uh, 22 verses 25 to 27 tells us of this. If thou lend money to any of my people that is poor by thee, thou shalt not be to him as a usurer, neither shalt thou lay upon him usury. If thou at all take thy neighbor's raiment, so his clothing as a pledge, thou shalt deliver it unto him by the sun that goeth down. For that is his covering only, it is his raiment for his skin, wherein shall he sleep. And it shall come to pass, when he crieth unto me, I will hear him, for I am gracious. So they weren't, if they were going to take something from him, they had to give it back to them so they could at least have a good night's sleep uh, and a covering, because uh, they might probably sleeping outside somewhere. So Jesus, though, himself, so this is a lawsuit, Jesus himself was taken to court by an angry, unruly mob. And he was dragged around uh, from place to place. And we looked at that through the adult Sunday school earlier in the year. Um, Jesus was taken to court by an angry and unruly mob. And the judge ruled against him. He, but he willingly suffered not only humiliation of losing his clothing, but also suffered the agony of the crucif crucifixion. He, they had no claim against Christ. And he was humil uh, humbly dragged around, slapped around, clothes ripped off him. Um, they tried to abase him as much as they can, and he had done no wrong. But he took it. He took that humiliation, and uh, again, looking at uh, when he got slapped in the face, take that to be able to show the, the love and the power that God has uh, for each one of them. The third thing that we are not to resist is a civil regulation. Equally repugnant to the hearers of this command was the illustration Jesus gave going the second mile. So this wasn't a, an easy thing for them to, to take. The nation was under Roman rule. And everywhere they went, there were soldiers of the Roman army wandering around. These soldiers carried heavy backpacks. And as they walked from one place to another, um, a law was passed in Israel allowing a Roman soldier to require a Hebrew boy to carry his pack, his heavy pack, one mile in any direction. So we could be in here and a Roman soldier could wander in and, and, um, and grab Peter, he's a young boy up the back there, and require him to uh, take his pack and start walking into town. So I think I, I looked up Google Earth, um, the uh, Google Maps to see how far it is. A mile, about 1.6 kilometres, will be from here to a bit past the five ways. 
Okay, so you have to walk from here, around the corner, down your own road, hit the five ways, start going down Mate Street probably just a little bit further. So that's about a mile. So he might have been here at church. Roman soldier could grab him, come with me, young fella. You gotta hike my pack, go all the way out there. So no matter what you're doing, they could grab you and take you, or you had to help him with his huge pack and get out there, give it back to him, and then, and then come back to what you were doing. And the, the Jews hated it. Um, they had to drop whatever they were doing and obey the command, otherwise they'd be subject to punishment. And the Jewish people thought that this law was evil. And rather than telling um, them to just obey it with a smile, Jesus said, if you are compelled to go a mile... Uh, do not just go one mile, but to go two. And that would have really got against them. They wouldn't have liked it. They said, man, we hate having to do one mile. You're telling us not just to do that, but to go two? And the first mile was, a f was just fulfilling an obligation. But the second mile was investing something of value in the life of that Roman soldier. So instead of having just to go to just past the five ways, they'd have to go all the way down to the other end of Mate Street, where it links up with North Street. That's about um, two miles uh, up there. And you, you would have got a lot of um, attitude from, from people um, when you got asked to do that. So the Israelis hated it. They would have had... To have done it, and they would have grudgingly done it. And they would have done, and would have gone to the very mile, and then shoved it back over to the Roman soldier, and and then um, hooked it back. And I suppose it was young fellas, so and the, all of them hated it. So they would have been told to say, "Well, um, yeah, if you can get out of it, try and get out of it. Don't don't let them. Don't go any further than you have to go. All that sort of stuff." You would have been telling your young fellow about that. And now Jesus was telling him to go the extra mile and you can see and imagine the reaction of the the Roman soldier when that would have happened so it would have toddled off down to just past the five ways and the, and and you've got a little bit past and the Roman soldier might have said oh mate you, you've gone as far as you need to go here um, you can give back now you can go he said and then he said oh no no I, I want to take it a bit further I'll take it to the end of the street for you how about that and he he would have been shocked and, and stunned to think, well, what, why would this guy do it? Most of, them hate, most of them hate us having to be made to do this. And this guy is actually going to take it further. He's going to take double what, what he was, he's obligated to do. Why, why would he be doing this? When you see that the second mile was investing something of value in the life of this Roman soldier. Jesus was compelled... Um, to walk to the city of Golgotha, not with a heavy Roman pack, but with an even heavier cross, which caused him to stagger under its weight. That final walk was voluntary on Jesus' part because he knew that through it he would be able to win redemption for all those who believed in him. And those that that boy as Christ, he didn't he didn't have to go to the cross, but he chose to do that. He voluntarily did that for the redemption of our souls. And that Jewish boy, when he chose to do that, or he was encouraging the disciples or any Israeli to do that, when he went that, he went beyond the obligation, 
then they would have been asking questions. Then the opportunity to be able to um, share the gospel with them would arise. But it's not until we go beyond what our, our normal obligation would be. The fourth area I want to look at is the needy neighbor. A needy neighbor. To reinforce this concept in this command that a follower is not just to grudgingly fulfill what is expected of him, but to go beyond that which is voluntary, beyond that, and voluntarily invest in the lives of others, Jesus adds a fourth situation in verse 42 Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow thee, turn thou not away. Throughout his entire ministry, needy people asked Jesus for things that only he could give. He fulfilled their requests and then went on to sacrifice his life for them as well. Jesus also illustrated the importance of going beyond what is required as a matter of paying taxes. When the taxpayer asked Peter if Jesus paid taxes, Peter said yes. Then Jesus explained to Peter that he was not obligated to pay them because he was the king of all the earth. So he didn't have to. Nevertheless, in order not to offend these officials, he instructed Peter to acquire the money to pay the tax. In Romans, uh, Matthew 17, 24 to 27, we have this, this story. And, and so Jesus um, tells Peter to go down and, and go and catch a fish. And when he pulled that fish in, opened his mouth up and there'd be the money there to be able to pay the tax. Um, and he went through and did that. And um, so be able to go that, that second mile for not only just a, a Roman soldier who is obligated to do of fulfilling that the law that we were required, that civil instruction, but also to help our neighbour, whether that's someone in the church or someone outside the church, to be able to help them uh, when, when needed. So we looked at those five things that we are not to resist. So why did Jesus require the second mile? The goal of this command is to develop and demonstrate genuine love to all those that we meet, especially those who feel they have been hurt by us. Jesus designed us to develop a love for whatever and whoever possesses our financial resources. Matthew 6.21 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So where we give our money or our time or our efforts... We develop a love. That's the way God's designed us. If the person who lost the lawsuit simply gave what was required, there would be no basis for any spontaneous love. However, if he gave more than was required, especially in something that was dear and important to them, uh, then he would be investing in the other's life and develop genuine love. When we give and invest time in something or someone, we develop a love for that. If we just don't do anything, we haven't invested. I see that in um, in everyday life. If someone gets something for free, they don't value it as much as if they've had to work hard and, and pay for something, they value it a lot more. Same as if we invest in someone or something, uh, we pay the price, we, we, we're growing a love for that person. And investment in that. Um, the same result would be true by going the second mile for a despised Roman soldier. 
The voluntary investment in his life would produce a spirit of love that would far outweigh the inconvenience of the second mile. Jesus used the same principle in identifying the requirements of being a faithful servant. You can turn to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17 and verses 7 to 10. But which of you, having a servant ploughing or feeding cattle, will say unto him by and by, when it is come from the field, come and sit down and, uh, to meet? And will not rather say unto him, Make ready wherewith I may sup, and gird thyself, and serve me till I have eaten and drinken, and afterwards thou shalt eat and drink. Doth he thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I trow not. So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, We are unprofitable servants, for we have done that which our duty is to do. So it is only as a servant does more that they're, they're required to do from a voluntary spirit that becomes a profitable servant. So in employment now, I see a lot of people who, I don't know, they, they, they don't give back to their employer. They try not to even just do what they're employed to do sometimes. But when they do do what they're supposed to do, they think they've produced a miracle and, and they should be rewarded and, and praised and bowed down before because they've done what they're supposed to be doing. But that's not what we're supposed to, to do as an employee. We're supposed to go in there and do the best we can and do all our duties. And then when we go beyond what we're supposed to do, we do extra stuff that wasn't our duties or someone else's and we're helping out or something. That's when you're really noted and seen as, wow, that's a great employee because they've done something that I haven't even asked them to do or duties beyond what they were capable or, or um, employed to do. That's when they're really of note and uh, they're noticed. And that's what the Christ is, is trying to, to say here is we need to be able to have that voluntary spirit to go beyond what's just obligated to do and then we'll start to, to see the rewards. Jesus learned obedience um, by the things that he suffered. Hebrews 5 eight says, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And sometimes we need to be able to suffer through some things to be able to learn obedience. That sort of leads us into the next one is why God sent Israel into Egypt. After God promised Abraham, Isaac and Jacob that they would have a great nation and that kings would bow down to their descendants, God used a famine to bring down Israel um, into Egypt where they remained for 400 years um, in slavery to Pharaoh. This was actually um, a time of child training in the growth and history of the nation of Israel. Later, when God delivered them from the bonds of Egypt, he continually reminded them of the lessons that he taught them while they were down in Egypt. We see that throughout Scripture. It talks about how oh, this 
Uh, remember your time in Egypt. Remember Egypt, Egypt, all this, these things. And it was a time of training them to be obedient. So we had to go through that suffering for them to be able to learn and, and be able to look back at those things. And, and sometimes it's not till we get through some suffering, get through something, we can look back on it. We can see, oh, yeah, I've, I've learned this lesson out of that. I know why God did those things for me. He built this character quality in me, allowed me to come closer to Him, whatever it may have been. And he brings those things into our lives to, to be able to train us up, to be able to, to be able to learn to be obedient under Christ. And there's an amazing parallel between the experiences of Israel in Egypt and the, the events in the life of Christ, which we've got here, the history of Jesus and the history of Israel. And both these sequences reveal the training that God gives to prepare his people for second mile responses to be able to go beyond what we're obligated to do and go that second mile. The parallels are identified in the following. So the history of Jesus. So Jesus was born in the promised land. So Matthew 2, 1 there talks about how he's born in Bethlehem. He was in, in the promised land. And, and the history of Israel, they began in the promised land in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. So they both began in the promised land. Second step was that um, from there, Israel, they went to Egypt for survival. So we know the story of Joseph and how he was sold off and went to Egypt. And then there was a great famine. And uh, the family, in the end, they was reunited with his family. And he brought Israel and all his, uh, and all his sons down into Egypt for survival because they were starving in, in Canaan. And so they come down into Egypt uh, for survival. We know the story of, of Jesus, how he fled to Egypt for survival. So King Herod knew the prophecy and he wanted to wipe out all the children. And so to survive, they fled down and went into Egypt. You can see the, how it's lining, lining up. And then we have written there, learned, they then both learned obedience to authority. Hebrews 5, 8 and 9 says, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Israel learned obedience to authority. Exodus 3, 7. And the Lord says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt and have heard their cry, reasons of their taskmaster, for I know their sorrows. So they had to go through that suffering to be able to learn obedience. History of Israel there, that Israel was then baptized through the sea and a cloud came upon them for guidance. In Exodus 14, 21 and 22, it talks about how um, the Lord provided a way of escape and they went through um, the sea. The sea was divided. They went through there and, and were, were saved out, out the other side. Matthew 3, 16 talks about how Jesus was baptized and the Holy Spirit came upon him and filled him for service. We then have the uh, alliance of the wilderness testings. So uh, wilderness testing for 40 days in Matthew 4, 1 to 11 um, in the history of, of Jesus, how he went out and he fasted for 40 days and Satan te tempted him and how he got through that, that, that temptations. In um, Numbers 14, 33 to 34, we have... Um, how uh, the 12 spies came back 
and 10 of them didn't want to go in the land, two of them did, and the decision was made not to go into the land. And so Christ, uh, so God then forced the children of Israel to go into the wilderness for 40 years of testing and, and endurance out there until that generation had died off. Finally, the history of Israel, God's power to conquer, conquer evil in the promised land. So after they went through that 40 years in the wilderness, God then raised up Joshua to lead the nation into the promised land. And we know the story of Jericho and the power of God to blow those walls outwards uh, in that first step of, of claiming the land. And we have the power in the history of Jesus, the power to conquer evil in the promised land. Throughout his ministry, um, we see God's power, Jesus' power on this earth. He will overcome and conquered sin and, and death throughout that time. It's a, an amazing analogy and a parallel that we can see through Scripture. To finish, uh, I wanted to have a look at some personal applications. How can we take this message, take what the command of Christ is doing and, and apply it uh, to our own life? One of the most painful and difficult ways of sharing Christ's love with others is to rejoice in personal insults that are afflicted by others. When we are asked to go and to walk the second mile or are grievously insulted, it is vitally important for us to remember what Christ gave up and experienced in order to pour out God's love on us. And we should think about when we're we're going through an assault, or a, um, it could be a verbal assault. I remember I used to play footy and word of God around that I was a Christian and uh, I must have laid a tackle or something. He goes, oh, that's not a very Christian thing to do. And I uh, started getting into me <laughs> around that. I, I thought, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> it's, it's known out there and, and your testimony should shine through to know that you're a Christian and, and they might rib you, they might persecute you, they might... Um, insult you for, for your stand but we can take joy in that we can, we can take assurance to know that we are to suffer through, through those things and we, we don't suffer nearly as much as people in, in other countries do here but that's going to increase but we can know that, um, that our suffering is nothing but compared to Christ and that he can use that to be able to um, show love towards other people and that uh, to build us up. But First Peter two twenty one to twenty four says, For he for even hereunto we are called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not but committed himself to him that judges righteously, who his own self bear our sins for his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, whose, whose stripes we were healed. Christ is that perfect example for us. He went through all those things to die, to give us a way of escape. So let's ask ourselves some questions. Has God reminded us during this message that we can go the second mile in one of the areas that was mentioned?
Have we been reminded of circumstances where we have been wrong in retaliating instead of that we should have trusted God to defend us? We also need to recognize that developing Christ-like love is more important than sacrifice. I must make um, the, the sacrifice I must make to do more than I am obligated to do. So it's not about the sacrifice that we make. It's about developing the Christ-likeness, which is important. And we, we're very easy to get wrapped up in works. We want to do stuff. And we think that by doing stuff is, is, is what makes us good. But it's not. The doing stuff helps us to be more Christ-like. We want to be able to be more like him. And that's what we should be focusing on trying to build, is being more like God than sacrificing, uh, say, oh, well, I cut off my arm so I could do this for God. That's not what it's about, not having bragging rights. It's about I wanted to do that because I wanted to be more like God. That's the focus we need to have. And a lot of the time we can develop wrong, wrong thinking, uh, and we need to be able to retrain ourselves to think correctly, to be able to think Christ-like. And we have that sin nature in ourselves and, and that keeps wanting to, to come up and take our focus. But we need to be able to train our thinking to be able to think Christ-like. And we need to be able to re- remind ourselves regularly of, of some things. So we remind ourselves that I will see insults as opportunities to let the light of Christ shine through me. Think about, okay, I'm, I'm insulted here. This is an opportunity to be able to let Christ shine out. Another one, I will not resist civil authorities, but will see their regulations as God's means of benefiting my life. I kick against the goads and think, well, that's a stupid law. Why are they doing that? But it's regulations to be able to benefit your life. I will not seek revenge for harm, but we'll trust in God's mercy for justice. We want to be able to seek revenge, don't we? I've had this bad thing done to me. I want to be able to seek revenge. But we need to be able to trust in God for his mercy and justice. I will always try to settle disputes out of court. I will give beyond what I'm obligated to give, even if it means sacrifice. I will develop love for my offenders by voluntarily investing in their lives. I remember hearing a testimony of a pastor who had broken up with his wife at the t- um, and she was actually living with another man. And uh, he tracked her down and went to the place to try and get her to come, come back home. He was trying to restore his marriage. And he went there and she wasn't there, but the man who she was living with was there. But he was gravely ill and um, actually needed help. And he actually had to force himself to go in there and help that man and be with him for a while and actually build him back up and get him back to, to good health. So imagine having to try and do something like that, invest in someone who you would hate their guts <laughs> on. Uh, he's, he's, there, he's there living with your wife and you're investing in, in that to be able to show the love of Christ. Um, that's amazing. So I develop love for my offenders by voluntarily investing in their lives and until you invest in them, give something and do something for them, you can develop that love for them. 
And I'll recognise that by giving beyond my obligation, I will develop more love for my offender. So being able to go beyond doing, doing that, investing extra stuff than you're obligated to do, you're going to build that love for them to be able to reach them for Christ, to be able to maybe, uh, it could be a fellow Christian who you've offended, you might be able to bring them back in, um, be able to restore them to the faith. But that's why we are to go the second mile. Let's close in prayer. Well, God, we thank you and praise you for your word and instruction to us, Lord, and the challenge and, and sometimes hardness to be able to take it on and apply it in our own lives, Lord. And we, we pray for your help, Lord. We are weak and um, we are um, prone to be falling back into sin and, and responding to the flesh rather than becoming more like you. Help us to become Christ-like. Your son was the perfect example for us, Lord. Help us to be in your word and reading it, Lord, that we can be uh, learning these things and applying it to our own lives, Lord. Help us to go the second mile for people, not only the ones that we, we like, but the ones that we don't like as well, Lord. Help us to be that godly example and uh, be with us as we go today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.